We're kind of breaking our book-by-book method that we're used to here, but, but it's still meaningful, it's still intentional. After the new year, then we're going to be in the Old Testament um, for a while. And then after the Old Testament, then we're going to come back to the New Testament. So that's why we're in Hebrews chapter 2, because, y'all, it is the Christmas season, right? And, and you got to talk about, and you got to sing the Christmas songs. You got to talk about um, Jesus in the manger. And I'm not opposed to those things. Don't, don't hear me uh, the wrong way. But, but if you pay attention to church patterns, then what we tend to focus on is we hit the Christmas season, and that's when we talk about Jesus in the flesh. And if we're not careful, we don't really visit Jesus in the flesh fully until next Christmas season. Then it's Easter, and that's when we talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection, which is a great time to talk about. Don't mishear me. But that becomes like the only time we primarily talk about it. And my point is that we should always be preaching a Christmas message. We should always be preaching an Easter message. That's the core of what we preach. And so at Cross Life... We don't have to wait on those seasons to occur. We're always proclaiming that Christ came in the flesh on our behalf so that we could be brought home to him. Like the Christmas message, the Easter message, like they all should be preached continuously throughout the year, not just in seasons. That's my conviction as a pastor. But that said, we're really going to focus in that Christmas season on the incarnation of Christ. We're just not going to do it exclusively at Christmas is what I want you to know. So I'm going to say Merry Christmas. He has come. I'm going to say Happy Easter. He's resurrected. But I'm going to say Joyful Christianity. These are not exclusive messages for a season. It's what we always unendingly proclaim whenever we're preaching here. All right, so we're going to do a Christmas message. Um, We're going to talk about Christ in the flesh. And that's what Hebrews 2 is actually about. He came in the flesh and it tells us why he came. So I love singing. Actually, let me take that back. It's really hard for me to sing Oh Holy Night because it's so high up here, like vocally. But I love to sing Oh Holy Night because it's such a high Christ-exalting song. So it's one of those, I see it coming. You know, it's kind of like, the you know how the pitcher's going to throw the pitch and, and you want to hit it, but you're like, I am so not going to hit this pitch, but I'm going to swing away anyway. And, um, and uh, so... Hebrews 2 is one of those, it's a, it's, it's a big passage. There's a whole lot going on in it, and I'm excited, and my prayer is, is that at the end of it, we will find great comfort and joy and praise for our God who came for us. That's the Christmas message, y'all. He came for us. Hebrews 2 tells us why he came for us. So let's pray, and then let's read Hebrews 2. Lord God, I pray that your word is clearly communicated today. I don't pray for excellent speech, though it helps. But Lord, I do pray for clarity of thought for all of us as we push into your word. And I pray that the word shapes us and encourages us. Not because of the words that I speak, but because of the hope that your word gives. But your spirit moved men to pen these words. And your spirit... And you have sustained your word through the ages for us who have your spirit within us. So, Lord, as deep cries out to deep, may your word take root in our hearts and change us in a way that nothing else ever could. 
Lord, be so gracious to us today that we are able to understand your word and that the soil of our hearts is turned in such a way that it takes root and bears fruit. All for your glory. Amen. So here's what Hebrews 2 says for us today. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Have y'all ever read Hebrews? Like every passage of Hebrews is like that. It stops you. Hebrews is dense. Um, it's not, if this, were, <clears throat> if this were a soup, it's not a broth at all. It's, this is a soup that is packed with, with vegetables and huge chunks of meat. I mean, it is thick. And so this is a pretty dense passage, but all of Hebrews is like that. Some pastors are looking forward to that day when they feel qualified, um, qualified, quote unquote, to preach revelation. I'm looking forward to the day whenever I get to preach Hebrews. Because Hebrews is going to be awesome. like, But it's going to be one that is a slow trek um, and making our way through it. So for me, if you ask me my favorite books of the New Testament, then it usually comes down to Hebrews and Romans. Those are my two top books that, that I just I gravitate naturally towards. Um, so I love Hebrews, but I'm telling you, if you were reading chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, and you're going... That's a lot. Then I'm telling you, great job. You're right. It's a lot. So there's two modes of, of preaching or approach that we tend to take to Scripture um, here at Cross Life. We always believe in expositional preaching or expository preaching, which means that the text is the text. The message of the text is the message of the passage. That's what expository preaching means. Okay. So we tend to do it two ways. One is that we read the passage and then we'll say, okay, here's three points that we see in this passage and those points come from the text. We did not invent them. If, if whoever's preaching at Cross Life <clears throat> says something is a point of the passage and you're like, how'd they get that? Then we've done something wrong. So the point of the passage <clears throat> or the point of the verse is the point of, of the message. That's expository preaching. Whatever it meant in its context that's all that it can mean for us today. The other method that we take is a verse-by-verse -verse breakdown, which is also expository preaching. But that's the approach we're going to take today. So if you've been thinking through Titus and you're like, you know what, we read the whole thing and we still move verse-by-verse, verse, but there were kind of like three main points that we were kind of tucking each one of those into, then that's expository preaching. Today is not going to fit that method. Today is, okay, what does verse 14 mean? What does verse 15 mean? What does verse 16 and 17 mean? What do they actually mean? That's today's approach, and that's probably going to be, honestly, the norm of what you hear at Cross Life Fort Smith. You need to be careful whenever you hear a preacher. This is a side note. Whenever you hear a preacher who's really focused on being clever and inventing ways to make the text come alive because to me whenever we get clever with our inventions it shows that we don't have faith 
or trust in the text itself. So whoever's preaching here, you always want to be listening and you want to say, where do I see that in Scripture? And that's why whoever's preaching uses a whole lot of Scripture. Because I cannot give you anything that will help you to cling to Christ and hold to Christ and grow in Christ in and of myself. I can give you wisdom, but you know what? How many quotes have you forgotten? How much wisdom have you forgotten that people have passed on to you? And then one day you're like, oh, I remember that. But it's not ready. The most abiding thing I can give you is the feast of the Word of God. To say, here's Scripture. We trust Scripture. This will keep you more than I ever could and ever would want to hope for. The best book that you could ever read will not ever touch Scripture. There might be great wisdom in it, but it's not Scripture. Scripture sanctifies us. It makes us holy. That's what Jesus said in John 17, 17. Your Word makes them holy. Sanctify them. So, that's what our goal is. So today's approach is expository preaching, but it's going to go verse by verse, which is slightly different than how we've approached it. So here's what verse 14 says. Since therefore the children, of, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So what do we see here? That's a, that's a, that's a hefty verse. It breaks down to two things tells us two main things that Christ took on flesh to be like us and I'm going to break that down here in just a second and number two he had to do this to destroy the works of the devil or to destroy quote the devil two things in verse 14 and that's enough to preach but it's not all we're preaching this morning okay because I can't do that all right point one what does it mean that he took on the flesh to be like us and it's simply this that because humans like you and I are flesh and blood, Jesus had to take on flesh and blood himself. Like he absolutely had to. You're probably, if you're, if you're thinking through John, because that was our most recent book, even though this verse or these verses appeared, you know, like almost a year and three quarters ago now, we're thinking of John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the Word was God. And then verse 14 said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And y'all, in this, in this Christmas season, we're looking at the manger. And we're thinking that the Word became flesh and He dwelt in the manger. So what I want to say right now, just as a caution, is if we're not careful, then in our Christianity, we begin to lose like an awe of the very common things. Like the common things of Christianity, that Christ was born in a manger, they no longer make us go, wow. And they no longer inspire awe because we're just so used to it. So I want us to be careful that we don't lose that depth of truth that the King on high came in a manger just like you and me. And He, is going, he experienced all of the human experience I mean, I love babies, but babies make weird noises. And babies have odd smells. And so did Christ. And He grew up as a child. Now, we have disobedient children, right? Well, I'm sorry, I have disobedient children. You don't. I have disobedient children. Here's the mystery of Christ. That Just tug this one back there. That while He was fully man fully human experiencing and smelling and moving just like a human he never sinned 
So there would be no touch of disobedience in him, which would be sin against his parents and sin against the father. So I don't know how to think through that one, but I just want you to remember that, that he experienced every human emotion, every human physicality, every human thing that we could physically experience. Um, every human limitation was his. Every human experience and temptation were there before him. He never sinned. But he knows what it means to be human, is what I'm telling you. He who knew no sin, we know the rest became sin for us, but I want to I just kind of pull this into a the- theological reality. He who knew no sin and limitation took on the limitations of frail humanity for you and me. So that he would be just like the brothers and sisters in Christ who sit here today. He took on that. Like that, I, I tend to lose my wonder at that. I'm not going to lie. I'm like, of course he became a man. He came in the manger. Of course, we know the story. When did it cease to move us? Right? So we'd never want to lose that. But what I want you to know is why in the world would he ever come to do that? And it says there was absolutely no other way to redeem us. Just like there was no other death he could die for our sake, there was no other existence by which he could live than what he lived. He came to live in this way because he had to, and he died the way he did because he had to. That's what Scripture tells us. It says... He took on flesh. He likewise partook of the same things so that through death. So he had to have our life so that he could die our death. But notice this. He didn't take on the form of angels. You ever think about that? He didn't take on the form of angels, which are actually seated above us in many regards. He condescended lower and came to man. So he didn't come as an angel to serve man. He came as a man to serve men and women. And so he took on a form that was much weaker, much more fragile. He came in the flesh. Point two, why? So that he could destroy the devil through death. That's another one of those. We get to Easter and, and we're, we're focused on the cross and the resurrection and everything, but, but we kind of lose that wonder, right? We lose the impact. If I could recommend a book to you, then here's one that I would really recommend. And it's the seven sayings of the Savior on the cross. A lot of S's. It's written by A.W. I believe A.W. Pink is the one who wrote that one. If it's not A.W. Pink, my apologies, it would be A.W. Tozer. It's one of my A.W.'s right there. But A.W. Pink, I believe it's who wrote it. And it's the, the seven, say, seven sayings of the Savior on the cross. And the seven things that Jesus said on the cross, and each have such theological significance. Um, it's a great book that, that I would encourage you to read. But here's why he came in the flesh. Look at verse 14. That through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death. That is the devil. So he came in the flesh to destroy the devil. The spiritual cosmic battle that is occurring that you and I cannot see has been won by Christ coming in the flesh. It seems absolutely backwards from what I would think. That there is a supernatural God fighting a supernatural evil. This must happen in a realm where we cannot see, and it's not that at all, that the supernatural God would defeat the supernatural evil by sending His Son in the flesh on the cross to die on our behalf. It kind of just blows my mind whenever we start to think. Okay, And I, I, I'm not going to lie. I feel like we're kind of skipping a stone across the surface in many ways. Like we could really dwell and think so much more. 
but, but you and I need to know that when he hung on the cross and said, it is finished, what he absolutely did was he utterly destroyed the works of the devil. So it is finished is our king saying, it is done. I came in the flesh, I died in the flesh, and they are yours and you're coming home. That, that is yours. He's telling the Father, I'm bringing them home. And he puts his spirit within us. So that's what it means, that he had to come and he had to die this way to destroy the works of the devil. Now you're, you might be thinking, that doesn't match up with what I see in this world though. I mean, there's darkness in this world. There's evil in this world. There's wickedness in this world. Ricky, it says that he came to destroy the devil. The devil seems very much alive and active. And here's, here's maybe a better understanding of what's going on here. Not that he obliterated the devil. Not that he completely destroyed him. But what does Scripture say he's going to do in Genesis 3? He's going to crush his head. So he's crushed the head of Satan. He hasn't killed him. He hasn't annihilated him. He hasn't utterly destroyed him yet. What this verse means is that he's destroyed the works of the devil. And Jesus tells us that in the Gospels. He says that he's bound the strong man, which is the devil, and he's plundering his goods. So what this means is that in his death, in his coming in the flesh, that Jesus took away the power of the devil to hold reign of fear and terror over people. So he's, he's nullified that power. You might be thinking, I don't know, I still see wickedness. I still see despair and fear and hurt in this world. Let me ask you, Christian, are you in despair? Are you hurt? Are you in fear? Or are you enslaved anymore? We have moments where we don't know what to do. We have that anxiety. But Satan has no power over God's people anymore. So he's, he's kind of broken into that. He's still powerful, though, is what I want you to be cautious of. Peter says that Satan is like a hungry lion, and he is seeking someone to devour. And it kind of gives us that idea that if you've ever watched a cat, because I've never seen a lion truly do this except on TV, but if you've ever watched a household cat, there's still that nature in them. They see what they want to attack, and they begin to stalk it, and they begin to hunt it, and they don't attack immediately, but there's that measured approach of when will I attack? And they begin to pull down into that pounce and there's this look. And that is a healthy understanding of how Satan works. That though weakened and though his power really nullified in many ways, he's still powerful in our world. And so we're told to be very cautious of this. Ephesians 6 makes it very clear that even though he's bound, he's still orchestrating the rest of the darkness to combat with the light of this world as well. So I want to have that balance there, but I want to explain that what it means is not that Satan has been destroyed, which is, which is an understandable reading of this, but it raises a mystery of, well, what do we do with that? We use this scripture against other scripture or with other scripture to have a good, healthy understanding. What it means is that the reign and the power that Satan once had when Christ came in the flesh, he nullified it and said no more. So for those who are called Christ, his power over you has been completely destroyed. We're no longer enslaved to what Satan would have us to be enslaved to. We no longer have to live in fear. The hope of Christ has come, and he came in the flesh. So that leads us to verse 15. says that he did this to deliver all those through fear of death who were subject to lifelong slavery. Well, what in the world does that mean? Right? Because we think of slavery in one, one context— 
And I'm going to say in that context, there's a spiritual reality that you and I have to understand. That any sin that we cling to, any sin that's in us, that pulls us away from Christ, it's that sin to which we're enslaved. So, what does it mean that he nullified that power? Going a little bit deeper, it's this. You and I need to understand that sin is the manifestation and power of Satan. Sin is the manifestation and the power of Satan. That's been nullified in the Christian's life. We have victory. We have hope. Any sin which comes at us as with Christ in us, we can say no, never more. Anything that wants to push against our hope, we claim the cross is sufficient. So the sin that is the manifestation of all of Satan's power, because that's what he introduced into this world. And what is the result of sin? Death. Right? We know what Scripture says, that the wages of sin is death. And we also know that it says that all, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that means we've sinned. And if the wages of sin is death, then what does that mean? That death has reigned. From the sin of Adam and Eve, even whenever Noah and a a remnant were preserved in the, the ark, and then they came out and then sin is reigning. Well, as sin reigns, so does death. Here's the truth for us Christians. Y'all, sin no longer reigns. Christ reigns. He's the King eternal. All of the reign and the slavery that we would have to sin and to death then has been nullified. So, here's the irony of it. We still seek to sin. We do. Why do we? There's a whole lot that we could talk about. But the reality, the harsh, let's just rip the band-aid off. It's this. We still sin because we want to sin. And you might say, no, I don't want to sin. Like, I hate my sin. The new man, the new woman in you hates the sin. But there's still an old man and an old woman within us. And we need to learn to defeat the old man and the old woman within us. The new creation must defeat the old creation. But there is this war within us. Right? There's that battle. But we give in to sin because honestly, we gave into sin. We were willing to give into the sin. We wanted that sin. That's what James teaches us. That we sin because we desire it. And whenever that becomes full, then we embrace it. So a very real prayer that more Christians need to pray is, Lord, help me to hate the sin that you hate. Like, help me to fight that. So there's this irony. Okay, so then, what does this mean for that slavery? I'm I'm getting there. So we know that we still sin. You and I, though, have been justified completely Christians by the blood of the cross. Well, how in the world could he who died for me still love me whenever I live in sin in this way? You haven't understood grace. We don't get grace to that level. We're still waiting on that hammer to fall. We're still waiting on the wages of sin is death. He's just going to kill me because I keep sinning in this way. We're waiting on death to reign and we live in that fear and we become slaves to it. And we forget that when he came in the manger, in his birth was the death that he would die for us. And so there is absolute victory for us. We tend to gravitate towards the negative. And you know what the result of that is? Fear and a lack of joy. And that's not what the Christian life is all about. 
I'm not doing some name it, claim it, your best life now message. I'm telling you the truth of Scripture is that Christ has removed your fear of death because you know what happens when I die? I'm ushered completely into His presence. Y'all can be sad for me. My family will be sad for me. I'm going to be rocking out before the king in his throne. Like, that will be amazing to be ushered into his presence. And that's what many believers, whenever on their deathbed, they're ready for it. They're like, I'm ready to be in his presence. We're no longer fearful of death, y'all. As Christians, we don't fear death. I'll tell you this, I'm fearful of dying. The process of it worries me. My prayer is that, Lord, make me strong when that moment comes. But we don't live in fear of death, and you and I do not have to live in fear of sin or an indulgence of sin. Ultimately, the reason we sin is for self-preservation, self-pleasing, self-service. But you and I know the moments whenever we can say, I've had victory over that sin. You know why you had victory? Not because you muscled up, but because the Spirit within you has given you all the strength and power and Christ has laid the path and He has defeated Satan in the flesh. And so we are victorious. There's no slavery to sin anymore. That's exciting for me. All right. Okay, so... Um, we, that's, that's good. That's enough. I don't even need that point right there. Verse 16. Let's keep pushing through it because it just gets better and better. For surely... For surely it's not angels that He helps but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So we're we're building on these verses. Now, keep in mind what I've already told you before, that whenever this was written, and by the way, we do not know who wrote Hebrews. Nobody knows who wrote Hebrews. Um, But whoever the author was did not write it with chapter and verse numbers and headings to help us. They just wrote the words. Scholars have gone back and put the headings and the chapters and the verses. So this is all one long thought. It's all connected. All right, so we, we keep building... He says, so, um, so that we're no longer prone to slavery. Why? For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring. Now, this is a fascinating truth. It really is that I, I haven't paused enough until I was really just trying to let this sink in. But Jesus Christ, the holy, the powerful, the mighty, the glorious, the reigning king, he doesn't help angels. He doesn't help the angels. I never really just dwelled on that thought. Because, and here's why. Here's why I, I, I want to point that out to you. I tend to think that a God who is so high must entertain himself with higher and loftier things than what's going on in this room right now. Like he's got all of heaven and all of creation at his control. He speaks stars into existence and it tells us in Colossians that he holds all things together. Like this is a pretty powerful and mighty God and I would tend to think that he would be more entertained and at home and at peace. So just me entertaining himself with angels because they're higher and they're glorious. It just seems like my natural mode of thinking is that. And he doesn't. He helps the offspring of Abraham. And what does that mean for us? Galatians 3, 7. It's a great one. Galatians 3, 7. You can write it down. I'm going to read it to you says, understand then that those who have faith are the sons of Abraham. So the question, it's a rhetorical question, but you do need to wrestle with it in your heart. Do you have faith? In other words, do you, do you say, I'm a Christian, I cling to Christ? Do you have that faith? If so, Galatians 3, 7 says, 
that those who have faith are the sons of Abraham. So, just for the record, we at Cross Life preach to the sons of Abraham. We preach and we gather for Christians, to equip Christians, to have the hope as Christians. So, if you have faith, you are the sons of Abraham. So, it translates to this. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps Christians. He helps those who believe in him. That's a good good parallel translation for us. So, Christians, the high and resplendent king who came in the manger, the one to whom all of creation bows down, he came from heaven in the humility of humanity for you and for me and for anyone who would profess his name from every nation and tribe and tongue. That's who he helps. And so what does it mean, helps there? Like, let's push a little bit further into that word. This is why I love taking a verse-by-verse approach and word-by-word, word-by-word. It says he helps the offspring of Abraham. The word helps, here's what it means, like in the original language. It's kind of a cool idea to me. I've got three, three ways to say it. It means, quote, to take hold of. It also means to take by the hand. Or I love this one, to take hold with a purpose. So whenever it says that he helps the offspring of Abraham, that he helps Christians, it means, in the original context, it meant that he took hold of us with a purpose. And that's exactly what he's done with our salvation. Whenever we said that, Christ, you are the Lord of my life, and I will live my life glorifying you, he grabbed hold of us with purpose, and he is leading us home to bring us to himself. Like he came for us, but he did not leave us alone. In his salvation for us, in that great exchange, he took hold of us with purpose, and he is going to bring us home. And this matches everything that we've seen in Scripture. He didn't just tell the Israelites, flee from Egypt, you'll find me someday. But he went to the Israelites in Egypt, and he said, I will be a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, and I will lead you. He also tells us in Psalm 23 that I'm not just going to send you through the valley, but I will be with you as an ever-constant shepherd. I will lead you and guide you and protect you. And those whom He saves, who have called upon His name, He lays hold of you with intent and purpose and says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what does it mean that He came in the flesh? It means that He destroyed the works of the devil. He removed our enslavement to sin and fear and death. And then he also said, I'm laying hold of you in a way that I never could have any other way. By coming in the flesh and bringing you my salvation, I'm clinging to you. There's that hymn, He Will Hold Me Fast. That's one of my favorite hymns. I'm going to sing that one until the day I die. Because in it, it's not, it says, when my faith would seem to fail, He will hold me fast. We despair in our faith because we forget that He finished the work on the cross. Warren Wearsby so clearly puts it this way. Christ did not become an angel. He became a man. He became a Jew. He died for humans. Why? For fallen angels can never be saved, but fallen men and women can be saved. He came for us, not for any other aspect of creation. So he he came in the flesh in every way. And that leads us all the way to the very cool, therefore. Therefore, in verse 17... 
therefore is always there for a reason is what a, a great mentoring pastor always told me. Whenever you see the word therefore, look at the therefore. Why is it there? It's therefore. He had to be made like his brothers. Y'all hear this again. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We've got two really powerful quotes that framed my thinking for this verse. One is by Philip Hughes. And the short version of the quote is this. Our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours. So our hell he made his, so that his heaven might be ours. The longer quote just simply adds a few more words. It says, never was there such mercy. Never such faithfulness as this. But J.C. Ryle, man, because Ryle can always put it in a way that just punches you. Jesus Christ is not only the Son of God mighty to save, but the Son of Man able to feel. So not only able to save, mighty to save, but He's the God who's able to feel. That matters because, y'all, He is our High Priest. So it might help to understand... Okay, what, we're, we're saying a lot of stuff, and we're going to say a little bit more here in a second. There's a lot that we're digesting. The high priest, though, going all the way back to the Jewish law, the high priest was the one high appointed priest. And there would be a rotation through the years, but the high priest was the one who was basically in charge of God's people. It's not a good enough parallel to say, like, the pastor is like the high priest. That's not, that doesn't carry even near the same kind of weight. So we've got to go beyond that. And we don't really have a good parallel in our culture for that. But he is the high priest. And here's what the high priest would do. He was accountable for the people of God to God. And so every year, they would bring, he would take this sacrifice that was pure and spotless. And he would go through the rituals. And with everyone gathered, he would take this sacrifice in. And he would go in where nobody else was allowed to go. He would go into the Holy of Holies. And there's... There's uh, stories that you can read by different historians and different theologians where, and, and we can see it in Scripture, that, that there must be holiness in that high priest before him, for him to enter that Holy of Holies. So he had to purify himself so that he could purify the people before a pure and holy God. So there's, this, there's a law that's written in the law about this. But I've heard that they would tie a rope onto the high priest's ankle so that if he went in to the Holy of Holies where God would reside and he was unholy, he would die. He would, he would fall out of that presence and the rope was so that they could pull out the dead body because nobody else could enter into the presence of a holy God. So the Jewish law said that there would be this high priest and every year he would take this sacrifice and be made holy himself. He would go into the Holy of Holies and he would lay this offering there and he would let the blood flow. Blood has always been an element of, of a, a forgiveness and atonement to God. But the high priest would have to do it every single year because all that, all that sacrifice would do would be appease God. But it was never a full forgiveness because why they would sin again. Christ is the high priest. Let me just help you here. A lot of what you see in the Old Testament is really just pointing to Christ. So all these high priests who were imperfect, making an imperfect sacrifice that would never fully fulfill the requirements, Christ is the high priest. And he is the sacrifice once and for all time. So that's what we're getting to here. 
Listen to what, y'all, y'all flip to Hebrews 9. This really gives the context that we need. Um, and then we'll go on to the next point. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 13. It really expounds on this idea of Jesus as the high priest. In other words, as you're getting to Hebrews 9, the high priest would intercede for the people to God and back and forth. Hebrews 9, 11 through 13. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that have come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made by hands and is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus securing Yolik of that eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on, on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so much so that their bodies are clean, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, purify our consciences from work of death so that they may serve the living God? So, our high priest, here's the, here's the thrust I want you to get out of it, this Christmas message. When he came, he came mercifully and he came faithfully. He's the high priest, fulfilled absolutely everything he needed to. So keep in mind, don't let the common things of our faith become casual things to us. He came mercifully and faithfully. I'm going to keep going. Going to verse 18. There's a lot we could pe- uh, preach on the propitiation of Christ, but, but we get that in Hebrews 9, that he was the perfect sacrifice. He satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Romans, I'm sorry, not Romans. Hebrews 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, cross life, hear this, he is able to help, he's able to cling with purpose those who are being tempted. I love this illustration that I think kind of perfectly makes the point. Think of this which bridge, church, which bridge has undergone the greatest stress? The one that collapses under its first load or the one that bears the same traffic every morning? And every evening, year after year, which bridge has and endures the most stress? The one that whenever the load comes over, it fails the first time or the one that endures year after year, the same traffic. Because the bridge that collapses under the first amount of pressure no long, does not know how to endure stress, does not know how to suffer. But the one that daily and yearly routinely faces stress after stress after stress, it knows how to suffer, knows how to endure. So hear this. Here's how one pastor put it. That Jesus was born with a cloud of illegitimacy over him. He struggled to pay his bills. That's true. It's our common way of saying it. He had the pain of losing a parent. He lived in obscurity. He knew loneliness. He knew the pain of being underappreciated. The pain of being misunderstood. The pain of being slandered. The pain of being rejected by his own family the pain of being abandoned by his friends, the pain and suffering of physical abuse. He was a victim of social injustice and forsaken by God. He knows how to suffer. And so we go back and we see because he himself has suffered when tempted, he knows how to help those who are being tempted. As the high priest as the one who destroyed the works of the devil and faced the temptation of the devil head on and endured all these things in his life, 
The one who never sinned knows exactly how to help and equip you whenever you are tempted to sin. And that's our great high priest, that we have a God who sympathizes with us. He's not in the clouds on a throne saying, well, why not? Why, why, why? He's saying, I've endured that. I've endured that. Cling to me. That's what verse 18 reminds us of. So do not think on your darkest days, Christians. Do not think that he does not hear you, that he does not care. That's exactly why he came in the flesh. That's why we're preaching Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, that he absolutely knows the human experience. He knows darkness. He knows pain. He knows suffering. He knows temptation. When you lie in bed at night and you don't know what the next day can even hold, you need to know that you have a sympathetic God in heaven who intercedes on your behalf. Whenever I sent out the devotional about the Spirit interceding for us, I had a brother in Christ who sent me another one and said, read further in the chapter. And so I did. And it says that Christ Himself is also interceding. What great comfort that when we don't know what to do, the Spirit is within us interceding with the God who's on the throne and Christ on the throne is interceding for us as well. You have a great kingly high priest who has all power and authority and he knows what it is to be you and he died for that so do not believe what christ would tell i'm sorry do not believe what satan would tell you about christ that he did it coldly and differently that he doesn't care about the affairs of men that he saved you and you're done but what we see in scripture is something absolutely different we see a king who came in the flesh, a compassionate, a merciful, a sympathetic, and yet always holy high king who took on our flesh, walked the dust of this earth, and died. We always focus, he died to death we could not die, or he died to death that we could not die. He also lived a life that we could not live so that we could gather this morning redeemed by the blood of Christ. So, all of Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, what does it mean? Number one, Jesus came in the flesh. Number two, he destroyed the devil's plans and annulled his power. Number three, he became the high priest and sacrificed himself. And number four, he is bringing us home. Merry Christmas, church. Praise the Lord for our King who came in the flesh. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Christmas. Thank you that Christ came for us. That while we were enemies and weak, that while we were still enslaved to sin, that you, would, that you would send your Son so that whoever would call upon His name, you would save to eternal life by the giving of your own blood. Lord, thank you for Christmas where we get to stop the busyness of our human lives and remember that our God became human so that we may have eternal life. And that changes everything. Lord, for those who are gathered who are the saints and have faith in you, I pray that they feel your help, your strong, taking, intentional purpose for them. And Lord, for those who are gathered who, who may not be in the faith or who struggle with that, Lord, I pray that you quicken their hearts because your word and your gospel have been preached. And I pray that you do what you do because we cannot. That you call all men unto yourself. But Lord, what I pray is that we take such great hope and joy 
and strengthen this, that our King reigns eternal. Amen.